I understand that your pastor will continue his series on the Lord's Day, starting with Lord's Day 1 next week. So I've chosen a Lord's Day in the middle of the catechism, uh, Lord's Day 23. In connection with that, let us open Holy Scripture and turn to Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul has been dealing with God's righteousness, uh, God's law, the judgment, and so on, and how God upholds his righteousness. And I'd like to pick up the reading of God's word at Romans 3, verse 9, where after he discusses how God is righteous and upholds his righteousness, he says then, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. 
thus far the scripture reading. Let us sing in response Psalm 85, stanzas 1 and 3. This afternoon I preach to you God's word as we find it summarized in a Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23. Question and answer 59 through 61. Here the catechism asks and answers, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? And that's a reference to the Apostles' Creed that is explained in the preceding Lord's Days. And the answer is, in Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, And as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. After the sermon, let us sing Psalm 32, stanzas 1, 3, and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, life is full of relationships, personal relationships. Now, if someone were to ask you, with what personal relationship are you most concerned or who is the most important person in your life, what would your answer be? I think we will all agree that ultimately we must answer that the most important person in our life is God. Is our life not unimaginable without him? After all, he has made us. He's the one that put us here on earth in this world. He's the creator, and we are his creatures. And as one who made us well, he holds us responsible for our doings. He watches from heaven. He sees what we say and what we do. One day, we will stand before his judgment seat. Indeed, is life now already not a living before him Are are we now already not being judged by him? How do we stand over against this, our God? 
How is our relationship with him? What is your personal relationship to him, the holy God who dwells in glory? Lord's Day 23 is concerned about our relationship with God. And the question that dominates this Lord's Day is this. How am I right before my maker, my God? How am I to have a good and satisfying relationship with him? How am I, who by nature am sinful, to be right with him who is holy and who indeed created man well in the beginning? How am I to be right with him who judges now and who on the last day will come on the clouds of heaven to judge all men and women publicly? How is my relationship with this God to be a good relationship. What must I do? It is noteworthy that Lord's Day 23, in summarizing scripture, does not say too much about what we must do, but it does say a lot about what God has done, what God is still doing, and what God will do. For God is our judge, And the proceedings into our life relationship with him are in his hand. For he, as judge, presides, and he determines how we will relate to him. He, as judge, determines the outcome. Now, if we are to understand our relationship with God, a relationship basic to all of life, we must indeed see the whole question of our life before God in terms of a court, in terms of our appearing before the tribunal of the judgment seat of God. For the issue of our relationship is in a very real sense a legal issue, just as the word righteousness already intimates. And therefore this afternoon, let's consider Lord's Day 23 from the perspective of the courtroom, the courtroom of our lives as we live before God, who is the judge, and who there in the courtroom is active and exercises his justice over against us. Our theme is this, the divine judge exercises his justice over against us. First of all, he sees our guilt. Secondly, he presses for justice. Thirdly, he provides faith. And fourthly, he pronounces the verdict. So we stand before the judge, the Holy One. And if we are to understand our relationship to this judge before whom we live and who will determine the outcome of this trial, we must first know some things about this judge so that we can appreciate our guilt. God the judge is the one who not only made man well and made us well in Adam and Eve, But he also established a very special relationship with man in paradise. It was a relationship of love. God was father. Adam and Eve were his children, his son and daughter. There was close contact as the child worked that garden for his heavenly father. There was a bond of affection 
that pervaded life and made life so beautiful and full. It was a bond worked and maintained by the Father, a bond of peace, a bond of love, to which his children responded until sin came. It's important to see that man's sin, our sin, was not and is not the breaking of an impersonal law. We did not offend a law. We offended a person. And then not a stranger, but God, our Father. Sin is therefore rupturing that relationship with Father who had at one time established such an intimate bond of love with us and who established that bond over and over again as we sought his face and countenance in repentance. Oh, in everyday life, people appear in court before a judge, but the judge is a stranger to them. But in this trial... This judge before whom we appear, he is a father who has been hurt in his love by our sin and who calls those who were made to be his children, he calls them to account. Why have you done this? What have you done with my gifts and privileges? The closer we were to God, and are again and again as he reestablishes his relationship with us, the greater and more painful the guilt when we again fall into sin. We are hurting the Father by our sin. And so we stand before the judge who is not a stranger, but who is our Father, and he sees our guilt, guilt and sin, which makes a separation between God and us. Guilt and sin that his holiness absolutely abhors. He sees, God sees, wrongdoing that must be answered with justice, his justice. For the guilt and evil is real and causes accusations to be made before his judgment seat. The judge hears these accusations, they're vocalized. And so accusations are heard in court. For the first accuser that can be mentioned, the accuser that carries the most weight is our own conscience. Don't we know it ourselves? We have wrecked so much of the beautiful work of God's love. As we confess in our Heidelberg Catechism, my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to evil. Now, that's not the accusation of a stranger. That's an accusation our own conscience is making. A triple comprehensive accusation. It cannot be any worse. Every revealed will of God has been transgressed, Every rule in the book has been broken and it doesn't look any brighter for the future. We're inclined to all evil. We failed miserably over against him who now judges over against our heavenly father. Every time we sinned, we damaged the relationship with him 
And this has happened many times. Now, if we ourselves, who are in sinful flesh and are sinners, know this and can be bothered by our sins so that our conscience accuses us before the divine judge, then imagine how much more must the judge, our Holy Father, not be grieved who sees all our sins. He also sees the sins we don't even recognize or remember. How he must be hurt by our iniquity and how he must exercise his justice over against us. And our conscience is not the only accuser. There is here on earth also another accuser, namely Satan, who in Revelation 12 is called the accuser of our brothers. Now Satan has happily been thrown out of heaven. But whenever Satan gets an opportunity, he continues his attack on you and me, his attack on the church. And Satan also accuses us and cries up to God from earth, as it were, about our wrongdoings. He says, as it were, O you, O God, cannot get out of this. These people are not worthy of your love. They're horrible sinners. Their guilt is clear. Condemn them. They are not even worthy to stand before you. Are you not just and holy, O God? So Satan can hurl his accusations toward heaven. And the devil knows scripture. He can quote to God, for example, Proverbs 17, verse 15, where we read, acquitting the guilty and, con <clears throat> and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. That's a remarkably powerful scripture. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. And therefore, O oh Lord, you cannot acquit these people. They're guilty. Don't justify them. They don't belong with you in glory. They belong with me in hell. They're mine. And so Satan can accuse and continue to accuse. And his accusations do contain some truth. In short, our guilt before God is indisputable. It has been confirmed by two witnesses, our conscience and Satan. And so we stand before God's throne. He is the just judge who will press for justice. What now? After these witnesses and testimonies have been heard, so to speak, will the verdict not be rendered? But here the court session takes an amazing turn. We realize suddenly, as it were, that we are not alone before the tribunal of God. Someone else is with us, and he who is with us is for us. He speaks in our defense as our lawyer, as our advocate. Our advocate does not do, as is apparently becoming more and more practiced today, he does not start denying or discrediting the accusations. No, he doesn't deny anything. 
those accusations are true. Our guilt has been established beyond any shadow of doubt. Our advocate addresses the judge, and he says, as it were, Father, I do not deny those accusations. The sin is there. But, Father, I have assumed responsibility for every one of those sins. I have taken these sins that have been mentioned to my account. And I have seen to it that all those sins have been accounted for and paid for. The full penalty has been suffered. And therefore, Father, there is no need for you as judge to punish these sins now because then you would be punishing them for a second time. The punishment has been sustained. Indeed, if you were to demand punishment again, that would not be just. For I have suffered the punishment for all his or her sins in their place. Your justice has been satisfied already as far as these sins are concerned. That is the testimony of our advocate. And as it says in the book of Revelation, his testimony is true. For God, our judge, has pressed for justice. He has been active to see that his justice was fully realized. But not as sinful men and women would expect. By casting all the accused, yes, by casting all of us, into hell. Is that not what we deserve? But God has not pressed for justice in that way by taking out his wrath and anger on us, his people. We would never be able to satisfy his anger and holy indignation. We could never pay the full price. It would not satisfy God's fine sense of justice. And so God the judge has pressed for true justice, not by taking it out on us, but by taking out his eternal indignation on the Son, the Christ. In this action of God, we see something of the marvel of God's justice, a marvel of which the Old Testament is already full. For also there... God did not take out his full anger and wrath on his people. He did not destroy them eternally in perdition. There were many occasions in the Old Testament of which even sinful men would say, Oh God, get rid of Israel. These people aren't worth it. Look at their complaining. That's justice. But God never did that. God never vented his eternal wrath on his people. For example, after God had delivered Israel from Egypt, Israel muttered and grumbled in the wilderness. An ungrateful nation, they did not realize the magnitude of their salvation. They grumbled and muttered. And God became angry, but he did not destroy them in eternal wrath. But he did press for justice. He pressed for justice in another way. He said, 
Build me a tabernacle with a holy of holies and put in the holy of holies a mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant and there sprinkle sacrificial blood once a year for the atonement of all your sins. For I am pressing for justice. I demand blood and therefore sacrifice daily to me and I will pass over your sins. As we read in Romans 3 verse 25, in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In effect, God said to Israel, I'm going to withhold my judgment. I'm going to reserve my anger for someone else to pay the price. But you, my people, maintain the tabernacle, maintain the temple, offer sacrifices, and let the blood flow as a symbol of my just judgment, which surely must be executed, and one day it will be fulfilled in the Messiah. For I am pressing for justice, and my wrath must be satisfied, and it will be satisfied, and I will be glorified as the Holy One who tolerates no sin, who executes wrath through Christ. He alone can perfectly bear my wrath. Oh, the marvel of the justice of this judge. Although we deserve his wrath, he kept it back for Christ so that in him and by him, God's honor as a righteous judge would be vindicated. His justice as holy and righteous God would be satisfied to the full. He would receive the last penny due. And so our God pressed for justice and he saw to it that his wrath be fully and justly satisfied. And therefore he sent the son and Isaiah puts it in, and as Isaiah puts it in chapter 53, he put on him the sins of us all. Who has ever heard of a judge so going out of his way and getting so personally involved in order to see to it that his fine sense of justice be satisfied and upheld. Who has ever heard of a judge who would so press for justice? Most judges will simply say guilty or innocent. And if guilty, well, then the punishment must be borne as best as possible even if it cannot be born totally and satisfactorily. But that's not God's approach with us. His sense of justice is perfect and holy, and so the full price of his wrath must be paid. And therefore, when he looked at his Old Testament people, he said, wait, I'm going to pass over your sins. I'm going to hold my wrath in abeyance. And in my patience and forbearance, I'm going to forgive your sins in anticipation of the coming of Christ. He will fulfill my justice. And consequently, when standing before the tribunal of God, we may hear Jesus Christ say, 
Father, their sin has been paid for completely. It is unjust to still demand payment from them. Did I not do it? Did I not cry out from the cross, it is finished? I took their place. And have you not accepted my payment when you raised me from the grave on the third day? Therefore, Father, let them go, for payment has been made and accepted. In view of my sacrifice, the accusations no longer condemn them to hell. Indeed, did I not, therefore, Father, throw out Satan, the accuser of my brothers? Did I not throw him out of heaven when I ascended in triumph to you? And so we stand before our God. We are guilty. The accusations against us are true. But Christ has come and defended us and said there is no case against us because it would be unjust to still punish us for the sins we have done because Christ has paid for every one of them. When you start to think this through, this is unbelievable. What have we done to merit this kind of a defense by the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf? Was it not my sin that wrecked my relationship with God? Should I not pay? What kind of justice is this when a third person comes along and says, it's all right? Should I not satisfy for my own wrongdoings? How could God so love us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? According to our human mind and understanding, we cannot just accept this kind of a justice with integrity, can we? Was it not and is it not our sin? Oh, if we're looking for an easy way out, we can say, oh, fine, thank you, Lord Jesus, that's great, now I'm scot-free, not bad. But can we accept that with a clear conscience? Can we accept this as being really true and just? Was it not my sin and iniquity? Should I not make satisfaction? When we ask ourselves those questions, then we see another aspect of the greatness of the judge before whom we stand. In pressing for his justice, the judge also does something else. He gives us the faith we need in order to believe and to accept this unbelievable gospel that this is indeed true and just and right. God gives us the faith we need so that we may accept the testimony of Jesus Christ as being correct and just and as expressing the justice and love of our God and Father that he be glorified. We could never accept this on our own. And there's a lot of people out there today who thinks this is the foolishness of the cross. This is crazy. I cannot accept that. Indeed, 
We need faith, a gift of God to accept it. And the judge gives it to us. And so we see how the judge has the entire court proceedings into our relationship with him in his hand. He is the one who is active here and not us. Do we find this whole business hard to accept? He gives us the faith we need. He sends his spirit into our hearts and minds so that we may accept it and believe it. The faith comes from him. It is his doing. It is his gift. He is active. And faith is necessary. For without it, we would suffer the wrath of God and we would suffer it eternally. For we would never be able to satisfy God's wrath completely to his satisfaction. Our faith is necessary. Not because our faith is such a wordy thing. Oh no, it's not our doing. It's God's gift. But because as the catechism puts it, only by faith is Christ's work of any use for us. We need to believe it to make it our own. And so the judge exercises his justice over against us and wonders are his ways. He presses for justice by unloading his wrath on the Son instead of upon us. And then he gives us the faith that we need to accept this reality so that we may believe the verdict that must now come from his throne. For the defense, the advocate Jesus Christ has spoken, and now the verdict must be rendered. When a verdict is rendered, the judge usually says either guilty or innocent. What will it be? This judge's verdict is neither. Instead, the judge goes beyond what judges normally say. He says to us, you are righteous. There is a right relationship between you and me. There is not even a hint of there being anything between us. The judge could almost say, what are you actually doing here? You're perfect. You're holy. It's like you've never done anything wrong. As the catechism summarizes it in answer 60, and I quote the catechism, God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. God judges us as if we're Jesus Christ. God doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees only Christ. Christ whom he put forward as a covering, as an atonement for all our sins. And therefore the verdict is, you are righteous, you're justified, 
is just as if you've never done anything wrong. The marvels of God's justice and grace. By nature, we appeared before him as sinners. Our conscience accuses us. Satan accuses us. But God who sent Christ and gave us faith to believe in Christ says there's nothing wrong. It's as if you've never sinned. You are justified. When you hear something that according to our human mind and insight seems unbelievable, then later on you can ask, you know, is that really true what I heard? Is it right? Is it really so that my sins are gone, forgiven? When we hear the unbelievable, then we can start asking later on, is it really true? My sins of today, of yesterday, of last year, of my youth, are they gone? As if they've never existed? With momentous news, we can later start doubting. Our God foresaw that. And therefore, our God has given his decision as a judge in writing. He gave it to us in Holy Scripture. Here in his word, it's all spelled out in detail. When a criminal gets acquitted in court, he treasures the written verdict of his acquittal. He saves it because this verdict has set him free. That's proof there are no more charges against him anymore. The written verdict is proof of that. And so he treasures the verdict and he rejoices in it. So in a much deeper way, we may treasure the Holy Scriptures. There are written in here the words of life, the words of acquittal, the words for comfort for us who deserved death and hell. Here in Scripture, the Father spells out to us in detail how that relationship with him is now to function. And the primary rule he gives us is sin no more. Live as holy children close to your heavenly father. Sin no more. And God urges us, remember my justice and love in Christ Jesus the Lord. Sin no more. Live close to the word. There the Father speaks, and then the relationship cannot get crooked too quickly again. Then we have joy, the joy of life with God, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of being right with our Maker. For with this gospel, there's nothing between God and us anymore. There's a holy communion. And if we, in spite of our struggles against Satan and sin, if we still then nevertheless stumble and fall, then as those seeking to live close to the word of God, we know what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, where the Apostle wrote this, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, 
we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, it's true. The word of God says so. God put it in writing so we'd never doubt it. Satan may say after we sin, oh, now you've done it. There's no more hope for you. Do you think God can keep on forgiving you? How often do you think he's going to be patient with you? Now you can never be acquitted before the tribunal of God. That's what Satan can say to us and whisper to us in our hearts. And he continues to accuse us. But we know that what the devil says is not true. Ultimately, the testimony of Satan is false. There is hope and there is forgiveness even if we do stumble and fall into sin. There is hope, there is forgiveness, time and again for those who in sincere penance cry out to God for forgiveness, pointing to Jesus Christ. His word says so. Who will bring a charge? It is God who justifies for Christ's sake. That's the message of Romans 8. And God's forgiveness is a just forgiveness, not a phony one. Because if one trusts in God, he or she may know that all their sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ. For Christ's death was enough to pay for every single sin ever committed, if only there be faith. And therefore we may rejoice, for in Christ we are right with God, And that relationship with God is then guaranteed. Well, if we are right with the God of our existence, then all is well, and all will be well, for God is the key person of our life. If we are right with God, then everything will fall into place, no matter what the situation of our lives may be. And therefore, we can daily rejoice regardless of what life may bring. For to be right with God and to know the forgiveness of all our sins means that we've been acquitted. We are righteous. And that correctly understood gives the joy that never ends. Amen.